I so I <clears throat> I'm not sure how this is gonna work well. I so think that that awareness <clears throat> that I always feel when we listen to each other of um, empathy and compassion and uh, delight about people's good fortune, even when we don't know the people, that somebody there is having a birthday or somebody there is going to have a birthday and uh, in this very week and somebody is going to graduate from the kindergarten. Uh, I remember when my children were, and my grandchildren even, were graduating from the kindergarten that I would think to myself, they have no idea how much more school they're going to have to do before they're finished with the graduatings. And how really uh, pleasant and sustaining it is to relate to people that we know and don't know. Because sometimes, sometimes I don't look around at all, and sometimes when I look, I don't even know very well the person who's sharing. And I think that's true for all of us. We listen, but we don't know who exactly is saying what. But it doesn't matter, because what we get is not that we know them or not, but we get the feeling that's involved in having a child that's growing up or a child that, alas, is in some difficulty or a person that is about to leave this world. Or I could have also mentioned, but I decided I would tell you with my... Uh, uh, am I getting recorded? Okay. I decided I would tell you with my eyes open. Um, Marty Lai isn't here this morning, or her mother. Uh, uh, Marty comes all the time, and her mother, who's 97, comes all uh, often with her. And yesterday was her father's 99th birthday. And uh, her mother and father live in Santa Rosa in Friends Home, which is the Quaker... Uh, senior housing project or and um, Marty had arranged a sing-along for George on his 99th birthday and I was able to go yesterday afternoon which I was very glad to go because the the room was filled with people who live there it's it's a facility of people who can still manage on their own their individual little uh, apartments next to each other, and uh, right next door is a, a is an assistant is is really a nursing facility that people actually can go to on their way home from a hospital. So it's a, actually a public nursing facility, but it's also attached to friends' house, so that people who live there who take ill can be there and then go back to their own homes. So George and Gene were living there, and then he took ill. So now he's been in the facility for several months. And um, a number of months ago, it looked like really the end of his life was drawing very close, and Marty was talking about that. And then it was as if George decided not to leave. So he's still there, and he's, uh, and he's not in discomfort, but he's very much weakened. And... Um, so she planned this for his birthday. Um, and uh, so there was George in the front of the room sitting in one of those wheelchairs where you can be comfortable and lean back and uh, dressed in clothing in front of the room. And the room was full with 60 or 70 or more maybe people. Most of them, I guess, live there or old friends of theirs. And uh, George's daughter, Marty, and... Her children and their children were there. And Marty had prepared these old, old songs down by the old mill stream. Um, uh, I'll give you one ho. What's the next line? Green grow the rushes ho. Do you know that? Yeah. You sing that 12 verses. Uh, there were many songs that had many verses, and we sang them all over and over and again. And... Uh, and so Marty's up there leading the singing in three-part harmony often. And Jean was sitting next to George. Jean is quite well. She still lives in their apartment. 
So Gina's sitting next to George, and she's 97, and she's just gotten back from her 75th college reunion uh, that Marty took her to in New York City. So she's there holding his hand, and here is George. And he just listened most of the time, and it came down to, they sang for, we sang for a long time. And then the thing about George Hauser is that he went to divinity school in uh, uh, New York City. He refused to go to uh, be uh, in the army for the Second World War. He uh, was in a he was a conscientious objector, and he had to go to go to prison for a year, which is what happened to you if you conscientious objected. And he was uh, put out of his uh, um, graduate school, the theological school, for going to jail about that, which I find quite strange. But he subsequently uh, married Jean and finished uh, ministry school in Chicago, became a minister. He got to know Martin Luther King before Martin Luther King was famous. He was very active in the very beginning the civil rights movement. He went to uh, South Africa. He visited Nelson Mandela. He did all kinds of extraordinary things, which he remembers, and he likes very much if you come and talk to him about that. So people sang, and, and George was there and listening and listening. And uh, I was wondering about what he was thinking. And then near the end, we... Marty was making a decision, what should we sing next? Uh, and she said, well, it's not going to be the last thing. It's going to be the next to the last thing, because the last thing is going to be Dona Nobis Pachim, which is Grant Us Peace, which you can sing in three-part rounds, which was lovely, which everybody seemed to know. So the next to the last thing we sang together was We Shall Overcome. And really, George sang. You know, he looked so delighted with that and, you know, he had more animation about him and his eyes opened and he smiled. You could see his lips moving. And I thought to myself, you know, if that's what I've got in my last moments, the ability and the remembrance of being able to sing, we shall live in peace someday. And everybody's holding hands spontaneously. Nobody said hold hands. It has four verses, you know, we shall overcome, uh, we are not afraid, we'll walk hand in hand, and we shall live in peace. And it was great. The whole room was great. So I thought I wanted to tell you that with my eyes open so you could share. Didn't that lift you up? Can you remember? Did you feel, did you feel that in your body? The whole room holding hands, singing, we shall live in peace. We should do that, Sylvia, before we leave today. Okay. We should. Now or then? Then. I don't know. I was thinking now. Now. I'm going to turn off my... Um,
We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk hand in hand. We'll walk hand in hand someday. For deep in my heart, I do believe we'll walk hand in hand someday. We shall live in peace. We shall live in peace. We shall live in peace someday. For deep in my heart, I do believe we we'll shall live in peace someday. Amen. I went to a. Um, I went to two things that I want to tell you about, and of course, well, I already told you three things. Then I told you about George House's birthday party. I um, I taught with uh, Jack. We taught a weekend together, which we don't often teach. Um, and I want to tell you about uh, one theme that we wove through that. And I want also to tell you about, um, wait a minute, what was the third thing? I went to a day-long workshop uh, in, on uh, Monday on prayer and meditation. And parts, part of the discussion, uh, different people were presenting, um, and myself as well, about is, what is prayer, what is meditation, how are they different, are they different? What do you think? Are they different? You sure? <laughs> so clearly, <laughs> of course, on a certain level, uh, we usually say, let's say a prayer or say a prayer for me. I want to have the thesis that we are praying all the time really, that uh, not only in designated times that we are actually thinking of people, may they be peaceful, may they be happy, may they live in peace, but just in, in, in our lives, I think that uh, we have such a, um, an, a deeply understand, subconscious all the time, uh, not unconscious, but subconscious feeling that we want so much to be well. You know, I think when we say meta resolves for ourselves, may I be safe, may I, f may I feel safe, may I feel content, may I feel strong, may I live with ease, it's because we know so much in ourselves that that's what we'd like to feel. And that that's what all people would like to feel, that fundamentally... We know it's so possible not to feel well, you know, that, that oh, there, that was good. Thank you. Uh, we know fundamentally it's so easy to not feel well. I don't think that we're thinking all day, uh-oh, may this work, may that work. We don't think when I get in my car, uh, may I get there safely. There are some people who make a prayer about that when they get in the car. And it doesn't be think because they think they're going to get there unsafely. But it's a way of reminding themselves, I'm about to operate heavy machinery. Uh, anybody here does that? You know, I, th I think that, you know, that it's a great thing to do. I think I mentioned to you before, the American Sikhs do that as a way of taking yourself out of, if you're into what's predestined or preordained, you do your adgurename, you chant it in the car three times, yeah. and then you're somewhere else. Oh, <laughs> uh, I know people who, before they undertake a voyage or a trip, 
uh, also make a prayer that they'll arrive there safely and nothing untoward will happen to them on the way. And whether, uh, you know, sometimes I'm sure some people make that prayer because they think that that's going to, in some way other than themselves, keep them safe. I think it's a great, it would be a great thing if I did that every time I got in my car, even if I think it's only myself that's going to keep me safe. Actually, if I remember that it's myself combined with everybody else on the freeway at that time, then I really make a prayer for everybody. May everybody get home safe. And it's not magically going to cause people to get home safe, but it's going to cause me to drive more alertly because it's, it's, it, it, um, it reminds the mind that it could be otherwise, which is just on the other side of the mind all the time. You know, myself, as, a, as, a, as an adolescent, I began to think about the fact that when my whole family came together, uh, it might be otherwise, that my happiness depended on that. Um, when my children were young and I uh, heard about uh, the loss of my friends of one of their children or that some child had, some child actually was actually hit by a car on Laurel Grove Avenue one morning that my children were on their way to school, classmates of my children, two little girls. And I, after that, for some long period of time, when people left in the morning and they said, I'll see you later, I said, of course, I'll see you later. But it had such a bad ring in my mind because I thought to myself, what about that mother that morning? Had she said to them, I love you, I'll see you later, or I love you, or had she had said, uh, don't dawdle around on the way home from school, or uh, try to really bring your homework home today and not leave it there, or was it an admonition, was it a loving remark, that what does it matter? It matters that we hold them with love in our heart, but, yeah. Did you know people who did that, Robin? See, I did it myself. Oh, yeah? My On your children? My child, my son. I think that's great. Um, mostly, uh, mostly I, I, I know people who kiss their children when they come and go. I grew up in a family that did not kiss coming and going. I kiss coming and going, and my children kiss coming and going. My grandchildren know to kiss me coming and going. They didn't do that in my house. But I always picked up my friend Rosemary on the way to school, and Rosemary's mother kissed coming and going. And I noticed that, and I, I didn't say to my mother, this would be a good thing to take up, but, or, I, or I admire that in Rosemary. But, but that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Do you know goodbye is a blessing? Because it's actually a contraction of God be with you until we meet again, is what goodbye means. Did you know that? Yeah. So it's actually a blessing. Roberto, what? vacation or whatever it is, you know, we're very busy looking forward to what's going to happen and what we're going to see, but I often think of, may everybody be here when I come back, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well and safely, because that's a thought that has yeah. come to me. There, there is a prayer that I do say with my family on a, quite a regular basis. It's a prayer that you say on holidays, like uh, on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, when you arrive at that again. You say it on people's birthday. Uh, you say it when you arrive at a specific day uh, that is designated as a special day, where you all come together and you say, uh, I'm really grateful for the fact that we are all kept in life and sustained in life and I'll have been allowed to come until this day. And uh, it's a, it, it was my father's favorite blessing, and he said it at, uh, at unorthodox times. I guess he said it at orthodox times, but he said it when he went in the ocean for the first time every spring. <laughs> I would go to the beach with him, and he would say it when he was entering the ocean the first time every spring. 
And he said it when he ate the first apricot in the spring anymore. But now we can eat apricots in February or in October. And which means I'm very happy. Thank you very much. I made it another year. I have been sustained in life. I have been kept well, and I made it until now. And I used to listen to him say that, and I liked it because he said it at those times of eating an apricot or going in the ocean. And then I started to get melancholy about what would you do if you lost somebody in your life and you couldn't say that we all made it. So that the beginning of my edge of melancholy, I date to some place in my late teens and the recognition that my father said that and what would we say if it wasn't like that? Wait, but there was something very special I wanted to say. Go, go. I remember that when we got arrested for the I do remember, and you might also want to tell everybody, Susan, about what the marshal said to you. Susan and I were arrested uh, on the evening of the, um, that's the only time in my life that I was arrested. So you say. Yes, so we say. When we were arrested and brought into a holding room in the back of the federal building with 40 or 50 people in this very large cell. Many of them, veterans, have been arrested many times on civil rights, on, oh, what do you call it, um, what do you do, an act of uh, civil disobedience. And there was a, 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 a Franciscan monk who had just gotten out of jail the day before for civil disobedience, who immediately was organizing that crowd. And he said, how many of you are virgins? Meaning to say, have not been uh, arrested before. So he was now going to give us instructions of what to say. And Susan had a very, they let us out two or three hours later. But Susan has a remarkable leaving the jail story. You have to get up and say, otherwise people won't hear you. I, really, I, don't, I think singing, singing, we, have, we shall have a conference with that to me, but... Um, I, <clears throat> one of the things is that I was sitting and, and I was in front of the building and my rear was hurting from sitting. So I got on my knee, just on my knees because it was more comfortable and I was singing We Shall Overcome. And they picked up that image in the news, you know, that I mean, it looked like much more than it was. But anyway, um, back to the story. Okay. Um, I mean, also when we think, we went to the bathroom, they took us to the bathroom, we had handcuffs on, and the policeman says to us, if I take this, this is Sylvia and I, if I take this off, are you guys going to make a run for it? <laughs> <laughs> Through the window, I guess, of the yeah, jail. Right. <laughs> but anyway, when I got to, uh, because it was an interfaith service, I mean, mainly the people were, were you know, interfaith clergy. When I got to the door, the policeman said to me, um, would you give me a blessing, please? It was so amazing. And I said, of course I bless you. And then I said, and then we were at the door, and I said, you know, I, I bless the people of Iraq. I bless our soldiers. I bless everybody. But anyway, it was, it was a very, I, I mean, singing We Shall Overcome brings it back, and it's great. I think we have to, um, we have to keep reminding ourselves of the splendid moments in our life. I mean, I hear people keep telling themselves over and over about the bad times in their life and the hard times, but... I think we have to keep repeating those splendid times. And also singing reminds me about, you know, James's point about singing, lifting our spirits. And it's, it's That's right. And, and the other thing is singing, as we did, you do it as a group. Yeah. I mean, you could sing by yourself, but if you sing with a room full of people. I looked at all those people yesterday, uh, and they're all old, and a lot of them are infirm, and a lot of, I mean, they all walked, but some of them walked on walkers, and a few people were on, in wheelchairs. And it was a very happy and, and smiley and uplifted group, I think, because we were all celebrating George and singing together. And all of those people are somewhere near the end of their lives. I looked around, I thought, oh, all these old people. Then I thought, you know, I'm right in the middle of the age group of all these old people. Because I don't feel like I am, but I am, actually. I really want to talk about the fact that the mind, I think, prays moment to moment, what I said in the beginning. We really hope that we're going to get there well, whether or not we get in the car and say, may I get there well. We hope we do. We hope that the phone call is going to be there saying the surgery is over, or that Irv is getting better, or that this is happening, or that is happening. 
So whether or not we, uh, I, uh, at that prayer meeting, I told the story of uh, uh, a man in a, in a prayer group I was once leading, maybe 20 years ago up in Santa Rosa, uh, in the synagogue that I belonged to. And I went, I said, let's go around the room and say what you were praying for. And uh, everybody said, I'm praying for my sister or my father or my this or my that. And came to one man who was kind of like, and he said, I don't pray. And everybody, you know, kind of stops the conversation, right? And everybody sits up and he said, but I hope. And I really thought to myself, that's fine. We all hope. You say, I hope. You don't, you don't beg the whole question of to whom, to yourself, to something else. Is it natural? Is it supernatural? Is it this? Is it that? Does it make sense? Can you believe it? We all hope. And when our hopes are answered, we feel good. And when our hopes are not answered, we still mostly continue to hope. We hope. Hope springs eternal was one of those mottos that I learned as a child. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Another thing that I think is contingent on it, that because I want to bring these things two together, so I'll, I'll see if I can make them come two together. Because the other thing that I was thinking about since yesterday is um, there's an article in yesterday's New York Times about the growing anxiety in college campuses. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see that? And I had just heard from talking to a friend of mine Oh, the school semester is ending now, and uh, her child is in a notable uh, private school here in the county. Well, it's a wonderful school, a really wonderful school. And she said, I'm really pleased. In finals week, they, the administration brought puppies to school for people to play with, and they served hot chocolate. Because everybody comes stressed out. Now, I'm also thinking maybe there'd be another way to not stress them out so they didn't have to bring the puppies in the hot chocolate. But, uh, but I like that they were cognizant of the fact that I don't think it's their fault. I, you know, when you think about whose fault, if you realize that everything is the fault of everything, that there's no one particular point, um, the word stress did not, uh, as a verb, don't stress yourself, as far as I can tell, did not exist in French until the mid-20th century. And the verb in French now is stresser. So you say to somebody, ne stressez pas, don't get stressed about that. But um, we didn't have the term stress-related diseases until the 20th century mid-20th century, began to talk about stress-related diseases, which people had other diseases before that we now have wonderful cures for. But, this, but the idea of stress and stress-related diseases, I heard the other day, it's like it's been a big week for news about stress, about there are now uh, weekend workshops that people of all ages can take to uh, uh, deal with their addiction to their electronics that they have to not take their iPad and their, and their phone. And, uh, go, and for the people who keep them in their hand all the time, or in their breast pocket, or in their back pants, so they can hear, the, feel that it's vibrating when you got a message, you can't. And it seems, maybe it doesn't seem that way to you, but it seems to me, isn't that strange that that's happened, you know? Uh, I was thinking this morning, of course, you know, again, it always, but you know how old I am. Uh, when I grew up, that we had no telephone answering machines. If you called somebody and they weren't there, you didn't leave a message. You called again later. You did not come home to see your machine beeping away with, so that when you open the door, your heart falls down right away. It's beeping away. We didn't have answering machines. Then we had answering machines, but we couldn't take them with us. So, okay, then you came home and you answered, and some of them were bad news, and some of them were asking you out on a date or whatever, or, so it's not always bad if it's flashing. But then you come home. Then we got cell phones. And then we got these smartphones 
that can find us anywhere or do anything or alert us to... People are, I know have different <laughs> kinds of alerts, like let me know every time there's a... Um, uh, a sale? I don't know. Really? Really? Oh, worse than I thought. I have, I, I have, I have friends in Oklahoma who have let me know whenever there's an, a tornado sighted. So that's a good thing, you know. But then every time you're in your, you, you the phone is in your pocket and you're talking to somebody, and it, and it buzzes, it vibrates. You don't know whether it's someone, uh, whether it's someone calling you to tell you about a sale, or whether it's citing an earthquake. So what if you're in the middle of giving a lecture and it buzzes three times? You don't know whether or not to take cover or what to do. Or... The, the amount of input into people's minds. One of the things that people talked about. Some of the people in this uh, in this workshop that happened last weekend that Jack and I taught. Some people had never been on retreat before, and they hadn't had the experience before of turning off the electronics. And it's very quiet around here, too, because not only is it you don't have your own electronics buzzing, but the phones don't ring up at the retreat center, and it's relatively quiet. Nobody talks because they're all in silence. And people feel better and talked about it after a day. It's like, the mind detoxes a little bit because it has so many stimuli to deal with. And I, I actually, I thought about this this morning. Usually, this is, I have to preface, I don't have to, I'm choosing to preface this by saying, I love the amazement of the electronics. I love having it. I love being able to call Jack in Boston and say, how's your brother? I ought to text him even so I don't have to uh, uh, annoy him by answering a phone. I text and he texts back. So I love having that. I think it's magic that we didn't have that when we were children, and we have it now. Uh, I'm dismayed by the amount of stress that I think uh, it's possible to get into the habit of bringing on to oneself. Uh, the article in yesterday's paper was not about um, was about anxiety in college. Because people not people have the anxiety of being away from home the first for the first time, they have the anxiety, especially oddly enough, or not oddly enough, uh, it's especially hard time for people who were very very skillful as students in high school, who then get into some extremely prestigious school, and somehow are not the smartest person in the class anymore, and that's alarming to a lot of people and dismaying, and they're away from home. And they bring also 18 and 19-year-old hormones and um, enzymes. And there's a, there's a developmental growth period of the brain way before phones or colleges even that happens around late adolescence, one at puberty and one again at late adolescence. Late adolescence is, for whatever reason, uh, a very common time for schizophrenia to manifest itself. For, and nobody knows why, 18, 19, 20 years old. Something else is happening in the body and the brain at that time. People go away to school. They have to live with people who are not intimates with them and get used to it. They have to suddenly perform in classes. And uh, it's about the, it's called uh, Growing Anxiety Tests Colleges about the strain in colleges on their mental health facilities because they have people coming there all the time that are trying to keep up with it because they're aware of it. And how to, as a culture, even address that. I remember I, w I went to Japan 20 years ago, and when I was there, people talked about uh, how uh, in the new Japan that was, had put itself together after the war, one of the things that uh, was um, more and more a cause of stress in families was that children's parents, particularly their mothers, were very eager for them to get absolutely into the right university because on it depended their whole career, or so they thought. And so, but to get into the best universities, it, it boiled down to you had to get into the best preschool 
so that you could get into the best school, to get into the best school, to get into the best school. And that people were really uh, intensely on top of their young children to perform from very early on. And uh, not always with good results, really overburdening these young children. And I'm not sure that we haven't done that here 20 years later. That the last year of high school has become a terrible thing for people, uh, the, many people, especially the very gifted ones because these spaces. 92,000 people applied to UCLA last year. 92,000 people. And you don't apply there unless you have almost a 4.0 average, a 3.8, and be the captain of the football team and the concertmaster of the symphony band and uh, write a, an extraordinary essay and everything else. 92,000 people. It's a very, very... How many uh, do they take Sylvia out of the 90,000? My guess is six, maybe. It's a big school. I don't know how many they take, but but not more than that. Um, and besides, you get books now. I, I know this because I've just gone through this with one of my grandchildren. I went through it four years before. There are books that you can look at. You can go download online your grade point average and your amount of stuff that you did and where you would be in the web of people who apply to such and such a school. So... I might just have a barely a chance, forget about it, don't apply. I have a good chance here. I have a really good chance here. And everybody's got too many of the really good chances. So. And in the end, you don't know. You don't know anything. Uh, you really don't. What were you going to say? I was going to say, I think, uh, I think maybe that a big part of everybody's stressfulness is in the past 20 years or so, everything has been about me, 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 me. And mm. kids today don't know how to look out into the larger world and be a part of it. It's all mm. focused on mm. them. You know, and I wonder where we are as a culture compared to other cultures and whether California and the Bay Area is different from Upper Michigan. Um, I don't know, uh, or what your parents' religion is, or what they're hoping for. But I felt badly to see the to read this whole article, and uh, this is a uh, it's a picture of one of the helper dogs that's uh, I guess in the clinic in a mental health clinic, so people can come there and sit and pat the dog while they're waiting for their appointment. But I've, I'm thinking again about. What everybody wants, including the people who are coming to the mental health clinics, but the people who are not, is we want to feel okay. We want to feel not worried. We want to feel it's going to be okay. Because the, the, I think the flaw or the, the peculiar thinking in I must get into this school is that if I get into this school, everything will be great. And if I don't get into this school, everything is, will be terrible. There was an awful accident a number of years ago in the fall of the year when uh, the new students who had just arrived in Santa Barbara for the new term and a car went out of control in a downtown shopping area. Do you remember that? And rode up on the sidewalk and a number of people were killed. And I thought at the time that those people in May of that year, or April, or March 30th, had gotten emails that said, you're in. And they had been so happy and celebrated so much because this is what they really wanted. Maybe they turned down somebody else to go there. Maybe they was one of the persons who didn't get in and lamented it so much. And who could know? You can never know. You can never know. You can never know anything, which is really the cause of existential dismay. You can really never know. When it becomes so filled, that the mind becomes so filled with existential dismay, you can never know if you're making the right decision. It becomes an illness, and you can't move forward at all. How to have enough confidence and enough motivation and enough ease in your being to step out into your life and 
also enough to know that nothing is the end. You know, my 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 mother-in-law, who in our, when I was young, and she was an older person, I didn't think was the sagest person in the world, but she used to say things like, as long as you have your health, everything will be all right. But you know, it turns out that it's really pretty true, because as long as you have your health, you can do something else afterwards. You can decide, I'll do something else. And you don't know. You don't know if you turn right rather than turn left. What's going to come up on this street? Where the car is going to drive up on the sidewalk? What illness? Uh, my friend, um, Tony Bernhardt. Remember Tony who comes here whenever she writes a new book to talk about it? She's written another book, and she'll come in the fall and talk about it. Tony has been dealing now for 14, 13, 14 years with chronic fatigue that causes her really never for long for any period. She'll come out for the morning to come here, but mostly she stays home and mostly she lies down. She's had 15 years of some virus in her body that has caused her a chronic fatigue. And uh, she tells a story in one of her books, I guess, or she would here because I know it, that uh, she, the doctors think that she contracted that virus on um, a flight to Paris that she took with her husband that was a looked-forward-to holiday. And they were on the plane, uh, taxied out, I guess, and there was, or about to taxi, and then the, the announcement came on and said, um, you know, this plane has been delayed for three hours or six hours or something. But if you really want to get going now, there's another Paris-bound plane that's now boarding at the other end of the airport where there is spaces available. So we'll give you a transfer pass and you can leave the plane just now and go down and get the other one. They thought, oh, we'll get there early. So they got their suitcases, which they had carry-ons, ran down to the other end of the airport, got on the other plane, flew to Paris, and midday the next day, she was sick. And people think she probably got it on that plane because planes incubate um, viruses tremendously well. Everybody's breathing the same air. And you don't know. But you don't know when, you, when, you, when, when a plane falls down. And you could have you missed the plane. You could have taken the one after. You don't know anything. And how to move on unless your mind is... Uh, reasonably alert to the fact that life is fragile whether you get on the plane or not, whether you do X or Y. That's given. In the meantime, for our time here, how to plan wisely and not to start to do anything that's really reckless behavior, but how to have confidence that life, these bodies are pretty solid. And if we lose this job, we'll probably get another job. And if we get another job, we might get another job. And probably life is manageable if you go on. <coughs> and how to keep the mind balanced enough to make that decision. What were you going to say? Well, just a funny story. I started a novel this morning and talking about relaxation and remembering splendid times. Or, and this woman said she was in this workshop in this novel, the protagonist, and said everyone's re she knew they were thinking about you know beach vacations. And she said, Nothing came to my mind, and then I realized the image that she kept every time she needed to relax was sitting in the middle of a warm bun cake. Also, to to think to yourself, this moment is just fine. That's exactly the it, that's exactly like the image of you can do something. Like think, oh, I'm sitting in the middle of a warm bundt cake, or I'm sitting in the middle of this moment, and it's just fine. Right this moment, I think we're probably all fine. I don't know if somebody has a stomach ache or a headache or something, but we're all safe here. Now, really, you know, you might be thinking, you don't know, this is earthquake country, you know, that any minute we could have an earthquake, ceiling could fall down. It's not that heavy. It's all right, you know. <laughs> The, the, there's, um, the last, this is interesting, I hadn't thought about it till this minute. Oh, okay, I have to tell you what I want, the other thing I wanted to tell you. The last line of the teaching that the Buddha did um, 
when he was about to die, presumably he knew he was dying, so he gave his last teaching. And the last line of that teaching is translate, the best translation I know of it is, step into the future with confidence. Now that's a very lovely last line for a person who was just taught. The line before that is transient, are all conditioned things, which means that everything that's happening is passing which is the ultimate in the creator of existential angst. You know, I'm comfortable now, but I might not be. I'm alive now, but I might not be. I just had this physical. They said I was well, but in a minute I might not be. There's, there's really only this minute in which we can say it's this way for me. But move into the next minute with confidence. Not because, it, I, I think, that what it means is not because you know the next minute is going to be okay, so to speak, okay body-wise, but because it's just going to be whatever it is. And you can't, it, that's what it is. It's, um, and you'll be in it. And when you're in it, and when you're in it, the only thing you can do is not fight with it. This is what's happening now. It's really not to fight with it. Every once in a while, someone will tell stories of friends of theirs that they've accompanied through the last minutes of their life. With, usually, if the people are alert and not in physical pain, they're not having a problem with it because they know what's happening. People say things like, you know, I love you. Or I remember when uh, it's a distressing um, image, but um, I've, I haven't thought of it in a long time now. Uh, when the planes crashed into the World Trade Center, or really when the plane, the plane that, that, that crashed in, in Pennsylvania, people left messages on cell phones that said, my plane is going to crash. Uh, take good care of yourself. Take care of the children. You know, I won't be coming home. I'm going to die, but take care of yourself. Take care of the children. You know, that with our last minutes, when we see clearly what's going on, we bless who's left, really, if, if, if we're clear-headed enough, because that's the only possible thing left to do. That's really the only possible thing left to do. So the th point I wanted to make about the teaching that Jack and I did over the weekend, many of the people many of the people who were there were beginners to practice. And uh, many people had been on lots of retreats and been involved for a while. And so what we really talked about is what does the word practice mean? And sometimes when people say, I've been practicing for seven years, uh, what they usually mean is I've been coming to Spirit Rock, or I've been reading spiritual literature, or I've been meditating every day. Uh, I laugh sometimes when people use that expression, uh, uh, the expression sitting, because they, they somehow uh, equate practicing peacefulness with sitting, because we really do come here and sit, and you have a retreat, people sit mostly. So people will say things like, uh, I've been sitting for three years. It sounds like a really strange thing, <laughs> a long time to sit. <laughs> And there's a line in Jack's book about his teacher, Ajahn Chah, who he asked one time, how long should a person sit? How long do you need to sit? And Ajahn Chah said, um, he said yeah, I don't know. He said, I see chickens sitting on their nest day after day, and they don't become enlightened. So that it, it actually doesn't have to do with sitting. It has to do with what are we, we're not practicing sitting. We're practicing making the mind peaceful in the middle of a life of ups and downs, what the Buddha called 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes. Anybody here, if we had said, now in the next five minutes, not if you feel like mentioning, has to mention someone that they're thinking about. Everybody could have mentioned somebody. Everybody's got somebody that they're rejoicing for. And so everybody's got somebody that they're worried about. If not in their personal life, I'm worried about all the people in Myanmar who are the Rohingya people who are now being systematically part of ethnic cleansing. It's a terrible thing. And worse than that, by groups of people who identify themselves as Buddhists. 
And uh, you may have gotten an email uh, forwarded to you from Joe on the Yahoo page for this Wednesday morning group, which there is one that will explain to you about what's going on. We all have people on our heart who are in difficult situations now and people who are in happy situations. What we're all practicing is a certain amount of poise in a world and a life that's full of stuff. Uh, and what we talked about is things, uh, things count. Uh, somebody said, what counts as a spiritual practice? Counts as a spiritual practice if it's addressing the stirred up heart and mind that's stirred up because it's frightened or it's confused or it's overwhelmed or there's too much going on, to being able to get some poise, enough poise back in it to have compassion for us all. Because really, the people who are designated sufferers right now, and all of us who are people on the verge of having something that would frighten us, people from just regular people, all of us want to get through this day well. We all have that part of us that with or without knowing it, that's why I said we're praying all the time. We're hoping it's going to be a, a good day. How many people say to you, have a good day? Be, you know, and they, may, they just say it, but really that's the inclination. It, it carries in it that we might not. Oh, that really. Um, and so we talked about whatever lifts up your mind and heart and calms it. I have a friend with whom I visited yesterday, who was telling me about the, uh, the uh, who is in his life a minister, who in his uh, one day a month or two days a month that he's not ministering to his congregation, is uh, walking around in Sonoma County with two other friends that he's found who are trackers. Do you know what a tracker is? Or tracking is they go out into a field a designated area, and they walk around and they look at the animal tracks to see what's been here. And they go in the same place usually, so they are familiar with who lives there. This person said to me, you know, when the red-shouldered hawk is not in his area of trees and he's not there for a while, I feel bad because I miss him and I worry about what. And then when I see him again, I feel so good because he's back in his tree. And he said, I was really worried about the swallows because they disappeared and I really liked the swallows. And I thought maybe something befell them. And then I learned that the swallows migrate, so they're just gone for the summer. So I felt much better about it. And he said, if I spend a day looking at scat from animals, and you say, oh, look, they had deer have moved over into this area. And this is, this is coyote scat or this is something else. And he said, I look around at... What you can see if you really look, it looks like a field, but it's full of messages about who's been here. Everybody writes a letter that says, I've been here, I've been here, I've been here. Or you think to yourself, those swallows, they used to be here, where are they? He says, it's a day of remembering that my heart is alive, looking for what inhabits this natural world along with me. And his life work is being a minister to people with the everyday human comings and goings. And what picks up his heart is con connecting himself to this magnificent world that you see better if you pay closer attention to it. And I tell you that story particularly because I think that the clue is the pay close attention to it. What mindfulness really is, is the paying close attention to whatever it is that you're doing. Really, like you play a piano you put your whole attention in it because otherwise you'd miss playing it right. I mean, you don't have to be, I mean, if you're an accomplished pianist, it plays by itself, but you'd need to not be there for it to play by itself. I don't think you can be planning dinner while your hands are playing by themselves. That you need to not be there and the, you with your daily stories, my friend as he's looking around at where are the squirrel swallows and where are the, where's the red-shouldered hawk. He's outside of himself. He hasn't carried his whole story with him. Somebody said that before about you go out of yourself and you connect yourself to the outside world 
And then the outside world carries you. And your whole story of so-and-so who's sick and so-and-so who's this and this or that, they're not there. So think of something that you do that you would not have thought of as this is a spiritual practice. Of course, you know, sitting on a zafu is a, a perfectly wonderful spiritual practice, but it's not to become a good sitter on zafus. It's to become perhaps uh, able to focus your mind very clearly so that you'll have a good focusing apparatus so that you'll be able to catch your balance when you, you'll be able to notice, wow, I've, got all, I've gotten all stirred up. Um, anger has arisen. Maybe I shouldn't talk until it settles down. Maybe I should take some deep breaths until it settles down. I have enough focus and enough poise in my mind. So the sitting is a wonderful practice. Contemplative walking is a wonderful practice. Reading uh, books about uh, the nature of mind and consciousness, they're wonderful because they take you out of your own story and they delight you And if, if you're that kind of an inclination. Visiting sick people in the hospital is a wonderful practice because you're actually aware of doing a service. It's like giving a gift to somebody when you come to see them in the hospital and keep them company and talk to them. I actually think accompanying is going to be like if we make the eightfold path into a ninefold or tenfold, that the ninth one is going to be partnering and the tenth one is going to be accompanying. Uh, just to mention that it's not a path that if, if you live in in partnerships or in relationships or in communities with relationships, that wise relationship is a practice. Some you have to be able to keep your poise when somebody says or does something that startles you. I don't think that there's anything that wouldn't be a spiritual path, practice. If you had in your mind at the same time, may this cause my mind to relax. I think in that video that I made of everyday life as spiritual practice, I was talking about cooking a soup as a spiritual practice. And in the video, I'm chopping up vegetables for soup. And I'm talking about uh, if you're on retreat here and you have an assignment to be in the kitchen, one of the instructions is you can be meditating by, as you're chopping the carrot, you can be saying to yourself, chopping, 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 which, by the way, is actually fun. It's actually fun, isn't it? It's fun when you go home after that. I sometimes do that at home. I'm really chop, 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 or I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, just to make sure that my attention is completely here. And sometimes I'm just chopping the carrot and thinking. Uh, in the way of when we set to meditate today, I said, let your mind relax. You don't have to be focusing every second and just see if it's relaxed and not caught by anything. I'm chopping a carrot and I'm thinking about the soup that I'm making. And all of a sudden I think to myself, you know, that thing that my cousin called and left a message about this morning, that wasn't so nice. I'm really disappointed about that. You know, it's like him to always do that, you know. He's done this many times before. Meanwhile, befouling my own mood with my own stories about this particular cousin. And, but then you discover, if you are paying attention at all, that your mind has become really snared up with the stories that you've accumulated at that. But that, my mind is not comfortable when it's thinking about that particular aspect of that cousin. So, and if I pay attention to it, I could say that my spiritual practice of cooking soup, cooking soup, is a spiritual practice when I have enough focus to be aware in the activity that my mind has become filled with negativity and to address it so that you address it not by saying get out of here bad thought but by saying I really am disappointed that they left that message on the answering machine but you know I've had this cousin my whole life and it's really their way and they have lots of other ways that are really lovely 
you know, open your mind a little bit so it doesn't have to be the cousin. Could be I'm really disappointed about they left the message, but it doesn't have to be the whole thing about all the bad things about that cousin. If my job in life, and I think it is, is to keep my mind a nice neighborhood because I'll be more comfortable in it, an enemy-free uh, enemy neighborhood, I'll be more comfortable walking around in my mind and I'll be a nicer person beaming out into the world. I actually, I'm convinced that we're um, antennas and we all broadcast all the time. Don't you think that? Yeah, you know, we're all antennas. And we come out while we're broadcasting. And uh, I think that's the job, that everything really hangs on intention. If my intention is to keep myself, keep my mind in a poised and alert enough place to discern when my uh, mind is beginning to tend <laughs> or beginning to... <laughs> you know, when you get on Twitter, what is trending? Where what starts to trend in your mind are unwholesome thoughts, negativity about this, greed, whatever it is, starts to trend, you notice it. You say, oops, that isn't where I meant to go. It's like going back to the fork in the road and then driving the other way because that is where you mean to go. So, uh, one minute to 11, I did it. Okay. <laughs> That's the point I wanted to make. Everything is spiritual practice if you intend it to be. I don't think I'm here next week. I'm not here next week. Uh, maybe the week after it, somebody knows? Says out there, not next week, the week after. Okay, that's the 17th. I'll see you then. Take good care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.